Hey everyone, today I sat down with Frank Calabrese Jr. He's an ex-mob member for the Chicago Mafia. Today we talk about Frank's background, what he did while he was in the Chicago outfit. We also talk about his father, Frank Calabrese, and his uncle, Nick Calabrese, that were both hitmen for the Chicago outfit. And on top of that, they were both made men. We also talk about how Frank wore a wire on his father, which ultimately sent his father to prison for the rest of his life and ended up dying there so Frank could start a new life of his own. Frank was a factor when it came to the family secrets trial, but his uncle Nick was a really key factor when it came to the family secrets trial because he ended up confessing to 14 murders, which ultimately led to the downfall of the Chicago Mafia at the time. So if you want to see more interviews like this and you enjoy this kind of content, please hit that subscribe button. And now without further ado, let's get into it. All right, welcome back to the IIY podcast. Today I got a new guest on today. His name is Frank uh, Calabrese Jr. Uh, he's an ex-mob associate for the Chicago Mob Outfit. Um, you know, so thanks for coming on today, man. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks for having me. Looking yeah. forward to it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I guess to give people a kind of a background, uh, you know, who's your, I guess we could probably kind of start with, you know, your father. Okay. I mean, my, my, my background is I'm from Chicago and I'm half Irish, half Italian. I grew up in a neighborhood called Elmwood Park. Um, my mother's side was my Irish side. My dad's side was my Italian side. A lot of times I say I was born into this because of the fact that even on my Irish side, my grandfather fought in an Irish gang against Al Capone. And uh, my uncle was the international president of one of the largest unions in the country for over 30 years, the hotel and restaurant employee union. On my Italian side, my dad and my uncle were both made members of the Chicago mob, Chicago outfit. That's how come I always say I was kind of born into this. The difference with our family from other families is we were a pretty normal family when I was growing up and I was young. But um, uh, our family business happened to be organized crime. In Chicago, you're not supposed to bring your kids into this life, unlike New York, where you where your kids would follow, the sons would follow their fathers in life most of the time. Um, you're supposed to make a better life for your kids. Right. So, and over the years, Chicago went more underground, whereas New York was still out in the open. Chicago was trying to get under the radar. You know, they got away from all the flashy stuff, tried to get away from violence. So... Growing up in my neighborhood, even though we knew our fathers were a little different, as young kids, we really didn't know exactly what they did until the Godfather came out in 72, Godfather 2 in 74, and started getting ID in newspaper articles. But still, we never went up to our fathers and asked. We were never, we were all, we were raised that you don't ever use your father's name going around saying, Do you know who my father is. If you did that in Chicago, people would laugh at you because it just wasn't the way. That was supposed to be done. Learned a lot of manners growing up, you know. Um, uh, respect your elders. Don't swear around ladies. You know, we had chores to do around the house. I lived a comfortable middle-class life. Was never spoiled, but never wanted for anything. My dad was a good dad when we were younger. Yeah, so you had quite the childhood coming up, you know. I mean, so you had, you know, a normal childhood, you know, for, you know, the most part. And then... You know, things kind of started changing after, you know, you kind of hit the teenage mark or what would you say? Yeah, well, it wasn't my dad's intention to bring me into this life, nor was he supposed to. But, you know, in high school, my dad said, I want to start teaching you about the street. You learn street smarts, you go to school, you learn book smarts, you're going to be successful. So I'm like, 
it wasn't like I wanted to follow my dad into this life. First of all, I'm half Irish too. You got to be a hundred percent Italian to be a maid member right. like my dad, my uncle. And so, you know, my dad gave me these tasks to do, you know, going, going and doing some book work, meeting some people, taking me for long walks, drives, talking to me. Uh, and he's teaching me. And the more he gave me to do, the better I was at it. And the more he's seen of him and me and kept bringing me further in. My dad was a little bit of a control freak. He wanted to control his kids. He did. He did. He felt that if he couldn't control them and did, that they didn't need him, that he would, um, that they wouldn't love him anymore. So sad. Damn. And so I wanted you to go know, to I was going to say, did you, did you know that at that time that, you know, that's kind of how he felt about the whole controlling thing or did you have to grow a little well, bit to. He, it bothered us a little bit because no teenager wants to be controlled, you know, having a curfew, doing all this stuff, you know. And the big That's thing true. that really bothered us, what we didn't understand, is myself and my two brothers all wanted to go to college. I went to a Catholic high school. I lettered in two sports. I won the Golden Gloves in 1980 in Chicago, undefeated. And so I wanted to go away to college. I had some colleges in mind I wanted to go to. And uh, he said I can go only go to a junior college because he wanted me in my bed every night. And he did the same thing with my brothers down the line, too. So instead of going to college, he got me a good city job working for the city of Chicago in the day. And then at night, he started bringing me further along into this life. He'd say, Frank, you're going to be my secret weapon. I'm not supposed to have you in this. And, and so that's how it all started. And then you're slowly graduating to more and more and getting more involved in it. Right. You know, it got to the point where um, where I bought into it. But I didn't buy into my the mob. I bought into my dad. I bought into my uncle. I bought into my family. And, you know, I wanted to do, like most kids, you want to do anything to appease your dad. I mean, me and my brothers were all the same way. Our dad was our idol. We loved him. We respected him, and you always want to try to appease him. You want to do, if he gives you something to do, you want to do it really good. So you'd get that pat on the back or that, you know, uh, notification that you really did something good. Right. Yeah. So was, you know, while you were doing all this stuff, you know, I mean, it just kind of came natural to you, like you said, because it was just, you know, doing something for your family. And, you know, while you were doing all this stuff, was your dad a made guy? Was he already made while you were he was sending you on these little tasks and stuff uh, not early on no in chicago they're very very strict about baking people they don't open the books a lot they also very strict on moving people up you can be a very important person in this organization and not have any any title but a crew member okay um and then you got your lieutenants your, your capos and then on up uh, then you have a lot of associates guys that aren't italian that are part of this organization. That's why they call it the outfit. And there were some guys, guys like Gus Alex over the years, year or before my time, who was very, very high ranking Greek associate that that was very highly respected by the bosses and, and ran a lot of the mob. Wow. So, um, you know, but my dad, my dad, after I was into it, when I really got deep into it was in my 20s, I want to say around 23 years old, my dad came home from work one day and his adrenaline was going. He goes, we got to talk. They're always testing you, seeing if they can move you to the next level. Mm -hmm. um, anytime we talked and it was important, we went in the bathroom, turned the no, vents on, the water on, case of no. surveillance. And because there were times where people would see, actually see government guys holding these round dishes pointed towards our house a half a block away down really? the alley. 
probably trying to listen. So we were very, very cautious. And he says, remember I told you there's rules? Remember I told you no drugs in the, in, in, in this life? Yeah. He said, well, we caught two guys tonight, and we had to kill them. And he describes in detail how they blew them apart with shotguns. Damn. He's watching the reaction to this. And my reaction was, this is my dad. If he says this is the way the street is, as crazy as it is, there's rules, and you don't follow these rules, you could get killed. So I I, I, I understood that. Uh, and, and he knew I understood it because he was watching in my eyes. And so that, at that point, you know, I followed my dad and my uncle, but I never bought into the mob. I bought into family, like I said. And, you know, I, I, I always tell people, too, my story, okay, I am not a victim. I, I bought into this. I made some bad choices at the time. You know, I never thought my dad would lead me down the wrong path or always have my, my, my best interest at hand. So I, I learned that later. But I did learn a lot of good stuff from my dad. What did you learn that was good? Smart. A lot of, a lot of street smarts. A lot yeah. of street smarts that I use in a positive way. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, today. And it also it gets me ahead, you know. Um, you know, simple stuff that, that, that most people use in their everyday life. You know, like judging truthfulness in a conversation. Ask a couple of questions you know the answer to for sure that you know they don't know. You know, um, every you know, it, it, a lot of stuff like that. You right. know, my dad was good at sit downs when different groups were, two different crews were arguing. You go sit down with the bosses. My dad used to say, he'd say, "You always let the other guy go first. He says, "Know your opponent. Know what the guy's trying to get out of this. Know the story, okay? And let the guy tell his whole story. Sit there very patiently. Don't say anything. Don't interrupt him." He says, and then when you go. You poke holes in his story, and he's going to start changing his story. Who are you going to believe? You're going to believe the guy changing his story, not the guy that sat there patiently. So, um, you know, he said sometimes I'd sit down and lie through the whole thing, and I'd win. Just wow. how he approached it. So it wasn't about the truth. It was it was about that. You know, it was funny because when we went to trial, I knew my dad better than anybody. And when I had to go against him, I knew that he thought that that courtroom was going to be like a sit-down that he did not study law. I studied law. I was intrigued with law. And I knew that was going to be my dad's one weakness. You know, know your opponent. Is that he's going to go there thinking it's a sit-down. And he did go in there and he did think it was a sit-down. And and it hurt him very badly with that attitude. Damn. So, you know, you mentioned your uncle and you said uh, he was also a main member of the, you know, the outfit as well. Uh, So... You know him and him and your father. They they had a pretty good relationship, and as you as well. Yeah, yeah. We were well. We we, we lived in a building in Elmwood Park that was a three flat with a huge addition, so it was all family that lived in there. So we were very close. Prior to that, before while we were building that, we lived over by Reese Park, which was where Fullerton and Grand meet by Narragansett, where the old brickyard used to be, and. Um, my grandma, my grandparents had a house there, and all the family lived in there too. So for a while, me and my brother, my my younger brother, we both lived in there growing up for a little while. So the family was all close. My uncle had a high school education. He he did go to Steinmetz. He went to he volunteered for the Navy, the Vietnam War, the radio operator, top secret clearance on the USS Enterprise. Dang. Um, when he got out, my dad got him a job at the Hancock building working as an iron worker. And uh, he did that for a while. And then in 1970, my uncle followed my dad into the life as his assistant. You know, we were very, very underground, as was 
the mob in Chicago. And a lot of people did not know our business, the extent of our business. So my dad and my uncle were very, very heavily entrenched in the mob. And they were part of a, a, a team that was part of the Chinatown crew that did a lot of killing for the bosses. Most people on the street thought we gave out some money for juice loans and maybe some sports betting or something like that. They had no idea, as did the government did not have any idea. A lot of people thought my uncle was just, uh, he's Frank's younger brother. Um, they didn't know he was involved in so much more. Wow. That's the way my dad wanted it. You know, yeah. when my, my uncle got made, they really didn't want to get made. My, my dad's philosophy is I have total respect for the organization. He says, but I'm making a lot of money. He says, and in, in, in once you're a made member, yes, there's some perks that come with it, but there's also a lot of, um, there's a lot more rules and, 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 and it's a, I try to look for the word, you have a lot of friends. So he said, I, I was perfectly comfortable where I'm at, doing what I'm supposed to do. And he always says, you never, Never, ever take money from the organization. You always get. So every month, my dad made sure that, that they always got a nice chunk of money, anywhere from twenty to $45,000 a month, depending on what kind of month it was. And never talk, never talk about moving up in the mob because the guy above you is paranoid. Guys that start talking about moving up usually wind up dead. And when you're told to do something, do it. And he was also, the other thing was, you know, don't be a spot cone. Don't be a big shot. Don't draw attention to yourself. Be very comfortable where you're at. He says, you can have the same house on the block as everybody else. Inside your house can be beautiful, whatever you want. But you don't want that big, expensive house on the corner that everybody looks at. Right. So there was, so you, there was a lot of lessons growing up. And a lot of people did not know exactly our business. Yeah. So you guys kept it really under, you know, low key, you know, under under the rug, you know, but yeah. eventually, you know, it, it. I don't know, I guess before we fast forward, you know, you guys went to jail and everything, you know, but, uh, you know, what was your dad doing and your uncle doing that, you know, caused them to, you know, go to jail or prison? OK, well, well that, that's a good mm -hmm. question, Adrian. So, you know, over the years, we were very cautious on what we did. My my dad made a lot of money. Um, he, he was he was he was a good businessman, you know. Um, he didn't bury people. He didn't he didn't do anything. He didn't try to hurt people unless they really needed to. It was, it was a last resort. <clears throat> but we were big in loan sharking. We were big in booking. Um, and um, you know, my dad had a big sized crew. We had so much money on the street that that his boss Angelo Lapitra he didn't have to go for permission for a lot of stuff. He just did it and turned the money in, and he had free reign over a lot of stuff because Damn. he was almost like the, the perfect lieutenant or the perfect soldier, you know, and, and, and Angela loved him for that. You know, you want a lot of guys like that. But, my, you know, when, you, when your pockets get full and your stomach gets full, that old saying, you start getting um, careless. And my dad sometimes would take some people's kindness as they were they were a good person and all they were doing is i always just say beware of the greek bearing gifts and um so we had a guy in the neighborhood that was a mechanic and my dad liked him my dad was always intrigued with cars had a passion for cars old cars so he'd take all his cars there and he would it was called them in our auto and we'd have work done this guy started to have some problems and my dad helped him out 
But what had happened was my dad always said, if you're doing anything wrong here, let me know because I'm not going to come around to it. So the guy was doing stuff wrong, and my dad didn't know. The government thought he was working for my dad. When they arrested him, they said, all we want you to do is turn your boss in. He's my boss. Frank Calabrese. He goes, oh, my God, he's going to kill me. He doesn't know anything about this. Well, where you wear a wire. So this guy's out there trying to set us up. And a lot of strange stuff was happening. Uh, I wound up opening a detail shop next door. And I told my dad, I said, there's weird stuff going on here, Dad. There's something not right with this. This guy's up to no good. I'm hearing a lot of stuff on the street. Long, long story short, he gets scared because he thinks we're on to him, that we were going to kill him. And he took off and went in witness protection. So we had this thing harboring over our head for years. And we didn't know if it was ever coming or not, if he had enough on us. We didn't think he did. So 1995, we all got indicted for that. Me, my brother, my uncle, and my dad, and about four or five other crew members for running a loan sharking operation from the late 70s to the early 90s through threats, intimidation, and violence. So that's when we went to jail. Damn. So this guy was really in fear then for his life. He thought yeah. he was like, well, yeah. let me This was coincidental. We had pulled over over the river and made him get out of the car to talk to him about the cars we were we were driving somewhere. It had nothing to do with it. But later on, one of the guys noticed, man, he was really nervous. He wouldn't get out of the car at first. Well, when you're not doing anything wrong with somebody, your guard is not up like it is when you're doing something wrong with somebody. Mm -hmm. So we didn't we didn't um we didn't think twice. We're not doing wrong with this guy. What do we gotta worry about? But mm -hmm. here it was him thinking. So, so he knew your father's reputation because, you know, like your father's reputation as being kind of like a hitman because that's what he was, you know, right? Yeah. No, he didn't really know the extent. He knew my dad was in the life, but he didn't know my dad's business. Um, mm. uh, only guys on the inside. Yeah. Well, so that's where that earlier case started from. Mm -hmm. uh, me, over the years, working with my dad and my uncle, this life changed my dad, and we seen him changing. And um, he wasn't the man that we knew years ago. You, you know, you got to have two personalities, basically, for this, for this life. Your street personality, your home personality. Law enforcement does the same thing. They have those two personalities. And um, I'm noticing the government's getting stronger. The mob's getting a little more paranoid. And um, guys are starting to get killed again in the 80s and uh, or in the 70s and 80s, I should say. And uh, my dad's changing. And he wound up having three personalities. Uh, his third personality was a sociopathic killer. And he would kill you with a rope and a knife. He'd strangle you. Then when he knew you were dead, he'd cut your throat from ear to ear. Some circles, they used to call it the Calabrese necktie derived from the Sicilian necktie. And as family members, we've seen this man changing. Um, um, more controlling, paranoid, manipulative, and violent with family members. We didn't know who this dad was anymore, and, and, we, and we feared him. You know, and, and it came a point where I, where I had my kids that um, I, I don't know if I want to be around my dad anymore. I think I want to... I don't want to be in this life. It's not what you told me. I've worked jobs all my life. I'm working a job. Uh, uh, with the city of Chicago. I got side jobs going on and I'm keeping busy because all my friends were legit because um, they were supposed to be. And, uh, 
you know, my dad was not an easy guy to say no to. So, you know, he was giving me a hard time because he thought I had gotten married. I was having a couple of kids and my wife was the wedge between us. Damn. Man, he's trying to pull me back in and he's getting very, very upset that I don't, um, that I want to be around him anymore. So he knew that you didn't want to be around him anymore. Yeah. So yeah. After- he was actually getting violent with me, controlling, terribly controlling me, my brothers, my uncle, and, and, and my mother at one point before she divorced him. And it, it, it bothered me, you know, bothered me. I, I purposely keeping away from, me away from my family, saying we got work to do when, when he didn't have no consideration for my family time, too. Um, and he'd control us with our money, too. He'd hold our money. So when we were younger, we used to give him our checks. We'd cash them into him. He'd put them in bank accounts and say, it's all going to be yours one day. Now, out of the money from the check, what do you need and what do you need it for? When we were kids, we didn't think twice. Well, Dad, I want 50 bucks. I want to go get a shirt, this, do that, you know. So you had to count to him for everything you were going to spend the money on. And, well, that's a lot of money. Why don't you go shop at Sears? Why do you got to go to the store where all the other people are, you know? And what are you, a big shot? You know, so it was it was always a major effort. And he kept clipboards with all our totals. And over the years, it went more, more and more. And then when we'd get into businesses, whether it was legitimate or illegal, the money we had coming, he'd put it on the list. He wouldn't give it to us. We became adults. We asked for it. Hey, can I get my money? Dad, I got a family now. I'm an adult. Oh, don't worry. It's all going to be yours one day. It's safe. You know. <laughs> so how and long was, did that go on for? Within, well, uh... um, until I was um, in my uh, early 30s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's and, quite a long time. Yeah. So what happened in the long run story, I, I go more into this in my book, but um, I decided I don't want to do this anymore. I want mm-hmm. to break away from my dad and I want to go out west, California, Arizona, Las Vegas. I got these kids now. I don't want to put them through all this. Now it's about my kids, not about me no more. Things are getting bad. My dad's changing. So I can't go ask him. He owed me almost three hundred thousand dollars that I that I accumulated uh, them over the year. I couldn't go go ask him for it. He's not going. Where, where are you going with it? Well, I'm going to leave. You're never going to see me again. So I did one of the most dumbest things in my life. I knew where he had money hidden. Had a duffel bag in a hiding place that he never went to, and I went there and there was like eight hundred thousand in there. And instead of taking my three and just leaving, I decided to take it all and fuel all these businesses and stuff I had on the street. It's crazy because over the years, my grandfather used to always say, my dad's dad, you know, money is your dad's God. He don't care about nothing but money. You touch his money, you're messing with his God. I know my dad's a killer. And instead of putting the money back, I took it all, kept it. Instead of going out west, I stayed, bought a house in the neighborhood. I was actually being a little bit careless and almost being like a spot cone, a big shot, you know, with the money. Things were going good, making money. I got some restaurants. He's not coming around. And all I'm thinking is he knows that money's gone by now. He knows I earned it. So instead of putting it back and and leaving with the rest, kept it all and stayed in the neighborhood. One day the doorbell rang and it was my dad. And uh, 
you know, oh, no, does he know about money? Long story short, it sounded like he was in a good mood. There's no way he can know about the money. I put the key in the security screen door, opened the door to let him in. He drags me out the door. My brother's in the background. He's got tears in his eyes. Oh, man, this ain't good. He goes, you took my money. I want my money. Dad, you know, a lot of that was mine. No, you know what? It's all mine now. I want it all back. I've been watching you. I know about your businesses and everything. I own your restaurants. I own everything. He says, matter of fact, I own your wife, your kids, your house, and you. Pour to me three times a day. I thought that was the end of my life there. Wow. And, yeah. And then, uh, you know, I tried getting this money back as quick as I could, and I'm doing a good job of it. And all I'm hoping for is, um, you know, unconditional love. I'm going to get my plan was to get him all this money back. And pay him at the restaurant extortion money. That's basically what it was. I'll give you a check every week, every month, okay, in your name so you can show income. And that's my gift to you every month. Just leave me alone. Let me run my businesses and stay out of that life. That's all I was hoping for. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty much paid off. One day he called, son, it's about time. Let's talk. Why don't you meet me by the park? We'll go for coffee. I was so excited. I was elated. Finally, I get over there. We're hugging it out. We're talking. We're laughing. My dad is Probably the nicest I've ever seen. He goes, well, come on, let's go for coffee. We'll take my truck. I hop in his truck. We're driving. We're laughing. We're talking about some funny stories that I was telling him because I hadn't seen him for a little bit. And he goes, hey, you got your key for the garage? I want to stop there real quick. I go, yeah. He goes, all right, come on. It was a work garage. It was kept stuff that was illegal, whether it was cars, weapons, anything that wasn't in our name. He goes, come on, let's go. So I walk with him, we're talking, laughing, and I go open the door and I go to go in first. I hear the door slam, I hear some shuffling, I turn around, it's got me by the neck, he's got a gun in my face. He says, I've tried controlling you, you're uncontrollable. Oh no, I just got set up. Anybody thinks they can't get set up, I'm telling you. They always say somebody close who's closer than my dad. He goes, you know, you're scary. You ain't got no fear. I'd rather have you dead than you keep disobeying me. Oh no, he's gonna kill me. My kids are going to grow up. I'm trying. They're not going to know where their dad is. They're never going to find the body. <coughs> Excuse me. I, I I started using trigger words. I was crying. I was I was grabbing him, trying to hug him, stay close, not break eye contact. Dad, I'm your son. I've been paying you. What's going on here? Did something happen? Please, my kids, don't do this to me. I'm sorry, Adrian. I got to take a drink of water. I have a little tickle on my throat. Good, man. Go ahead. Anyways, I got out of that garage and I never thought I was going to because my dad was the kind of man that never said, don't ever threaten somebody with a gun and not follow through with it. It'll come back to haunt you, I guarantee you. So what, what and, made him let you go? I don't know. I, I so can tell you. I can honestly tell you. I don't know if something came over him, if he wasn't sure, but he was mad. He was mad. And, and he, he, he I, never told you what for? Yeah, he couldn't control me. That was, oh, so that was it. That was the... It was building up. I mean, it started with little stuff. So I had my mother at the restaurant. She liked working at the restaurant a little bit. And he got mad that I put her at the restaurant, but she liked to be there. He got mad that I was paying her money, that I should be giving it to him instead. And one day I took off to spend some time with my kids because I had answered to him three times a day. So I had my mother lie for me. And he found out. And that was the final straw. You got your mother lying for me. You ain't listening to me. He knew I didn't want to be around him. And he just had a bad day that day, I guess. And 
It was in his mind because he used to talk about another union official that killed his son. And he said, he always used to say, he says, if my sons ain't going to listen, I'd rather lock them up on a pole in the basement and feed them three times a day. And then I know where they're at or kill them, kill them. He was big on this. If you, you just don't, you disrespect me. Um, if you said no to him, a lot of times he felt that you were disrespecting him. It was his way and that was it. It was hard to convince him. He was very stubborn like that. So, you know, I went back and got that gun. It was a little snub nose 38, carried it in my pocket. I walked around every day. I couldn't believe it. Damn, was my, man. That's my dad anymore. Damn. So, and that was prior to the, and I got these two little kids and that was prior to the, um, to the indictment in 95. So yeah. when these indictments came in, I honestly thought it was a blessing in disguise. I thought jail was my way out. I can use prison. Um, I was doing a lot of things wrong. I wanted to straighten out my life. You know, in the 80s, powder cocaine was socially accepted, only supposed to be habit forming. I started partying a little bit, but when I was on the street, you're always looking ways to make money. I couldn't believe the money some of my friends were making selling on a small scale knowing it was a death sentence from the mob. If you're caught, I opened up my own little crew, started selling. My problem was the infamous line from the Godfather, I'm not Godfather, Scarface, don't get high on your own supply. I started partying. I had a, a powder cocaine habit. And um, when I went to jail, I cleaned up and I've been clean ever since. Um, I was going to ask, what were the same, when you guys got indicted, it was the same thing that you were talking about earlier when, you know, the guy, you know, you guys. Yeah, this is, this is what we got indicted for. Okay, okay. Yeah, so I thought prison was the way out, the way away from my dad, the way to straighten my life up and get home and be a family man again. I right. still owe a few dollars, and I get take care of it when I got home. Well, when I when we got bonded out, I got a lawyer, and I'm looking at 10 to 12 years. If I fight and lose, and my kids are five and six. I'm like, wow, that's a long time. She goes, well, there's a there's a plea bargain. It's not a, not cooperating. They're offering you five years, $125,000 fine. Jesus, my kids will still be young. Let me do that. Mm -hmm. And um, and but now I had to tell my dad, you know, and it was rough to tell my dad because I still didn't trust him. I ran into him one day carrying that gun and uh, he caught me off guard. And I was at a cafe drinking coffee. And when I was walking out that back door, he uh, he stepped in front of the screen door. And I started reaching for my gun. He started reaching for his. He said, son, please, I just want to talk to you. And that's when I told him about the uh, plea agreement and stuff. Um, he says, you know, that's a good idea. As long as it's not cooperating, it must be something new. Why don't you plead guilty for me so I don't have to go to jail? I'll call it even on the rest of the money you owe me. And I'll take care of your wife and kids the whole time you're gone. And I looked at him. The first thing I thought was, well, I could never do this to my son, but I'm going to do this because my family will be taken care of. I'll be done with him. When I come home from prison, it's probably going to be about 10 years, but I can get on with my life. So it's 35, 45, 47. I got my life back. I'll take it. I'll get healthy in there, add years onto my life. The lawyers told him there was no way that he can get off completely because they wanted him more than me. So he decided not to do it. Wow. You were really willing to, you know, sacrifice seven plus I mean, 10 yeah. years. Damn. 10 years. 
just, uh, you know, I needed to get away from my dad, needed to change my life, and I, I need to take care of my family. So that's what I'm looking at. You know, all of it is just business decisions of, you know, what's the best route to go. But the biggest thing, this black cloud over my life is my dad. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's funny because years later, through tons of counseling and everything, and even government and everybody and family members, my, my cocaine habit, everybody kept saying, it had to do with your life. It had to do with you escaping from what was going on in your life. Um, I never looked at it that way, um, but I do a lot of volunteer work now. And, um, you know, uh, I've never had the urge. It's embarrassing that I ever did it. So maybe there was some truth to that. Maybe that was my escape. Um, I have my kids now. I have a lot of people that I'm close with and I'm, I'm living the life the way I wanted to live it years ago. So, you know, I'm happy. I got, I got that second chance. Yeah. Maybe you just didn't need to, you know, after you weren't around it anymore, you just never really had the urge because there was nothing pulling you down, you know, bringing you that kind of pain to think about every day or you need something to cope with it. I mean, it's gone. So so it was a problem. It was like an escape. It really was a feel good escape that I got caught up into. And, um, I learned a lot from it though. You know what they say, you know, it's not the mistakes you made. It's what you do with those mistakes in life that, that define you as a, as, as a person. Yeah. That's what I'm saying, man. That's what this whole show is about. You know, yeah. I mean, you, you keep making the same mistake. Evidently it's not a mistake no more. It's a problem. Yeah, that's true. So yeah. I was going to say, so after, you know, when you got to prison, you know, what would, did they ultimately sentence all you guys with? What was the time? Oh. Everybody pled guilty, but one guy. So my dad got 12, my uncle got seven, I got five, my brother got um, two, and um, and the other guys all got pretty light sentences, but one guy was offered three years, and he decided to fight it and lost and got a 10-year sentence. Holy shit. Well, you know, you try to tell them 95% conviction rate when the government goes in there, you know, it's tough to win, especially when you got a a conspiracy or a RICO, a racketeering uh, charge against you. We had the racketeering charge. So you're responsible for what everybody does in the organization. So as long as they can prove you're part of the organization, that's how you get sentenced too. So it wasn't a really great idea for him to fight it. No, I mean. He has their choices and has their reasons. So you got to respect that. Yeah. I mean, that's what he went through. I mean. So everybody prison and um, I was trying to get this drug program prior to going to prison. Uh, it's called a drug and alcohol program, 500 hour. A uh, guy told me, locked up, got a message to me that, you know, it's the only program in the whole system. You get 18 months off your sentence if you get it, but you got to have something on your record before you go in. So I went to my probation officer and I told him I had a part of cocaine problem. I pee tested dirty and she said, all right, we're going to put you, um, in front of the judge, but we got to can't get you in until seven weeks, and then um, and then you'll you'll plead guilty, and you'll violate, and you'll go into the prison, and you'll get that sentence. And I was kind of you know I seen some light at the end of the tunnel because five years minus good time minus that eighteen months brings me to less than three years. Yeah. So that's what it took. So I went right in. I was at MCC, Metropolitan Correctional Center, downtown Chicago. All the other guys got to report a couple months later to the prisons. 
And while I was there, I always worked my life. I, I got a job. I was working in the kitchen at the prison, you know, and keeping busy and working out and, you know, just felt good about my new life, you know. And uh, the list goes up on the uh, counselor's door once a week of where you're going. And I look on the list and it says Frank Calabrese, Milan, Michigan, which was in Detroit, right outside Detroit, Michigan. And I told the counselor, I said, that's my dad. He wasn't here. He's already there. Where's my name? Why is he on the list? And um, and uh, the counselor says, you know what? That's a good question. Let me check. He comes back. I got great news for you. In the system, sometimes they put families together. You want to spend your time with your dad. You know, wow. that was the only thing I did in prison. That of all people. Yeah. You know, just, just to make I never suffered a day in prison. You know who suffers? Your your wife, your kids, your mother, your loved ones on the outside. Yeah, and that's true. That, that, yeah, and that, I'll never forget that to this day because everything that, you know, me being in there, anything that happened on the outside, I've always blamed myself. If it was my, if it was my part of me or not because of my kids, what did they do to deserve this? Yeah, no, I know what you mean there, man. I mean, it's a rough thing. It is really well, rough, you know. I want Tra traveling in prison, you fly Conair, Nicholas yeah. Cage, the movie, not as Hollywood as go. I flew that a couple of times. I wound up in Milan. I wound up in Terre Haute Penitentiary because the plane kept breaking down. So when they do it, they lock you up. They're probably 16 days in hole. And uh, what I did in that hole was I wasn't feeling sorry for myself. I dug down deep inside. What am I made of? What am I going to do when I get home? What is my plan? Most importantly, the only man I ever feared in life was my dad. I have much respect for what a lot of men are capable of, but I don't fear him. My dad, I feared. I lost the fear of my dad, and I says, I'm going to give this one more chance to work out our differences when I go meet him in Milan. Prior to going into prison, we made a couple of promises to one another. I came clean with my dad about the drugs. He made me promise him and give him my word that I would never do him again. I kept that to this day. I made him promise me that he would never try to bring me back in this life. I just want to be a family man. I just want to work jobs. Um, it's about my kids now. And also I told him, Dad, we need to work on our relationship, man. You tried to kill me. He goes, we're going to work on that. We're going to work on that. I give you my word. So I was going to go there and try to work all this out with him. Mm -hmm. How did that um, go? Well, when I got there, I was already down six months. For the first eight months, I, I cautiously worked on my differences with my dad. Okay, I cautiously worked on my relationship. And I had my guard up because this time I was not going to let him manipulate me. You know, I was doing great time and he seen it. And then he found out that my wife had divorced me while we were in prison. She was scared. She asked me to let her go. And he always thought she was the wedge. So he sees an opportunity to try to bring me back in. He starts to manipulate me. And when I found out that was it, I had enough. So Sometimes what, like, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, so what, after you realized that, you know, what was going through your head? Well, that he was going to ease up. This guy's never going to change. He's going to try to pull me back in. He's going to try to manipulate me. So I had to make decisions. Sometimes in life, you have to make a decision, but you have to make it from the choices you have, and none of them are really good. And I, I was so mad at the time, I also took my time because you never make a decision when you're mad. It clouds your judgment, right? You're angry. 
So I came down to two things. Wait for my dad when he gets out of prison after me and confront him. Well, he's good at what he did. I'd probably wind up dead or in jail. So I thought about the FBI, but I'm like, you know, I'm doing good time. I don't know. I don't know them. You know, they're, the, they're supposed to be our biggest enemy. I was always taught that. So I came up with something that the government had told me that, that they never had anybody do this before. I, I made a business proposition offer to the government. What I did was I went to the prison library. I wore winter gloves for no fingerprints. I typed for no handwriting. I didn't put nothing personal in there in case it got intercepted. All I said was nobody can know, not even my lawyer, for my safety, don't bring any recording equipment. I I want to help you keep my dad locked up. It's a business proposition. I'll assist you. And then it was in the bottom of it, I put, I feel like I have to keep this sick man locked up forever. He won't change. And so it took him a while to get it. When they first thing they thought, normally he's doing bad time or he got in a fight with his dad. Let's get out there, get him in front of a grand jury so he can't change his mind. Let's find out what he wants. So they came out. What do you want? I said, well, no disrespect. I don't want nothing. I says, I don't want to be obligated to you guys. I'll do all my time, pay all my fines, no immunity. I'm only helping you against my dad. Will you wear a wire against him? I said, hell no. He caught guys twice on the street. I'm going to feed you information. So that's what I did. Now, the prosecutor came out to talk to me. I didn't find out till years later why he did, but all he wanted to do is he wanted to see my mindset. Is this guy doing bad time? Uh, is this guy mad at his dad? Is this a spur of the moment? Talked to me for 30 minutes. I found out years later, he went outside. And he said, this kid's doing great time. This is not something that happened overnight. This has been 20 years in the making. Do not put him in front of a grand jury. Or we will not put him in front of a grand jury. He's finally realized who his dad really is. Um, and I didn't want to wear wire at first because I said, I'll just feed you information. He's too smart for that. So what I did was I let my dad believe that I wanted back in with him. That's what he wanted. And that I had some issues with him. If we don't work out these issues, I, I'm, I'm done with you even as a father. So that's the whole setup I had with getting my dad to start these conversations. Getting wired up was hard because of the fact that <coughs> the government couldn't monitor me while I'm in the prison walls. There's too much concrete. So I had to get to and from this office without being seen. And if I was seen, I wouldn't know until I was dead on the yard. And when I left that office, the agents couldn't monitor me. I came back either one to five hours or the prison alarm went off on the yard and I was dead on the yard. Jeez, so yes. I got my dad to start talking was the fact that he um, he wanted me back in. in. In one of the first conversations, he told me right off the bat, he goes, I'm glad we're seeing eye to eye now. I'm glad you want back in. Um, in fact, you're going to take over the crew with my partner, Ronnie Jarrett, till I get home, but you're going to earn it. And he gives me the name of a guy who wants me to kill right away when I get out. That's all on tape. So what uh, tapes ultimately led him to being put away forever? Did he confess to some crimes? Well, we talked about a lot of stuff. So what had happened was, you know, when you want to get somebody to talk, anger, liquor, pit somebody against another person, I pit him against my uncle because my Uncle Nick was on the street with some guys. Hey, he's not paying for the crew's lawyers, his kids. He's telling everybody he is. So I went out, when I went out, I told my dad, he goes, what's your issue? I said, Uncle Nick, I pit him against my dad. I said, Uncle Nick told me that you killed an innocent woman 
in the Dauber murders. I go, Dad, I thought they don't kill innocent women. I don't want to be part of something like that. What? Why did he say that? That's not what happened anyways. It's a lie. She, was, she wasn't innocent, Frankie, and I was in a lookout car with Ronnie. But what about him in the half and half, in the half and half murders in Cicero? He killed this innocent guy. Did he tell you that? So my dad is just so mad. He was reeling all this stuff off. But the, the biggest mistake he made, he was so mad at my uncle that he sent his word, sent word out to another prison that he gave his blessing that if that he didn't think his brother was going to stand up. There's some problems going on and do whatever you got to do. And they tried to kill my uncle in another prison. They blotched it and my uncle started cooperating. Damn, that's he all it took was that push. Yeah. And my, these, but these meetings with my dad, when we started getting into it, he was preparing me for the street. I hadn't been with him for a while. Who's in charge? Who you got to watch for? Who did, who did that? Um, you know, all this stuff. Then we'd get these conversations. You know, and at the same time, we're working on our relationship and also, you know, I'm trying to keep him away forever. It was hard. I know I, uh, it's my dad. You know, you're always looking for that absolute proof and I didn't find it until I got out. But in my gut, I knew what I was doing right. It came down to one of the finals recordings where the government had enough about my safety. Um, I was supposed to go out in the yard and talk to him about these uh while taking over and a lot of stuff. And uh, the wires that they had for me weren't working. So they ran to the Detroit office. The next day they came back with these wires that looked like they were from the 60s with a jack strap and a metal box and these big, thick white wires. And I go, this looks like it's old. They go, it is. It's from the 60s. It was all we could find. You don't have to do this. I said, no, I, this is the only chance to get them. So I was wired up like a Christmas tree. And I went out there and, um, I mean, anybody lifts up my sweatshirt, I'm dead. My dad just got done telling me everything we needed to know and stepped into me and he's trying to pull up my shirt to see a tattoo I just got. I stepped back, grabbed the shirt. I said, the guard's looking. I'll lose my job in commissary. Dad, I can't get your fresh fruit anymore. Show me tomorrow. And he walked away and I was like this. The government had enough. I got transferred out to another prison because there was an eight month waiting list at the prison I was at for the drug program. So a lot of guys would transfer to other prisons where there was no waiting list and I did the same thing. And then I came home in um, 1999. Wow. Did you ultimately have to go to court then after all that and yeah. testify? Seven Operation Family Secrets. And it was the biggest mob trial since the days of El Capone because it was the first time that um, the government in Chicago used the racketeering act, the RICO act, the way it was supposed to be used, go after the organization. They found the heads, just not individuals. Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani did it years earlier in New York and took down the heads of the five families and a bunch of uh, guys in the organization. Also was the first time my uncle Nick, um, a made member, cooperated against the government and he really decimated the mob. I mean, if you go all the way back to um, the early 1900s, there was a little over 1,200 gangland slayings with only 14 convictions. In this case alone, there was 18 convictions and uh, somewhere around close to 30, 35 murders that were solved and the cases were closed because of this case. They were just, a lot of them were never made public. Wow, that many. Holy shit. Hard. Yeah, it was hard going against my dad because, um, you know, 
Um, that's my dad. I walked in the courtroom. I seen him. He aged. I wanted to go over there. I wanted to hug him. I wanted to take him out, you know, but looking at those eyes, those glassy eyes, I knew why I was there. So at the end of the trial, I mean, my dad put $150,000 hit on mine and my uncle's head. I passed on witness protection. It wasn't for me, for my own personal reasons. My uncle was in witness protection prison, so he didn't have a choice. And, um, and he tried to put $150,000 on a hit on our head. Now, <laughs> um, everybody was found guilty. My dad and two other bosses got life. Life is life in the federal system. Uh, my dad, because of the because of the hits that he put out, and he threatened the prosecutor during the trial, uh, he went into a special lockdown called SAMS. There's all terrorists in there. It's the secure special security measures lockdown. Um, and then I always felt that my dad was one day going to um, going to haunt me when he dies and goes to hell. He's going to be waiting for me, you know. So, but I was ready for it. I did what I had to do, and I got a call on Christmas Day, two thousand twelve, which ironically was my dad's favorite day of the year. Uh, he died after being locked down four years. Um, Strong as a bull, he died of, of a heart failure in prison. And I always felt that he finally got it, that he realized what he did to his family, realized his mistakes, and he's up above and he's watching down over me, telling me, better do the right thing, I'm watching you. You know, also, I also want to say, say he's not, say I'm wrong, say he's in hell, I'd like to hedge my bet. I don't want to not wrong eternity with him. I never had a chance to talk to my dad after that court date, nor did I want to, because I knew he wasn't going to change. If I knew he was going to change, I would have talked to him. Um, I was hoping that we both had a chance to change our lives and work on our relationship, that we were there in that same prison for a reason. Uh, the government did not put us there to put us together. Um, uh, it just happened in the Bureau of Prisons. They put family together. So, I, I, you know, I, I wish my dad would have took that advantage. He had more money than God. Um, you know, me and my brother had jobs. And, we, you know, and you know what it was? The addiction to the street. He could not get away from that addiction. He was sick for a while. He had a chance to step down and retire. That's one of the options in the mob. But if they ever call for you, you've got to come. Everybody on the street thought he was dying. I go, Dad, you got more money than God. Why go back? He says, I'm not going to. I'm going to retire in Florida. I says, great. And one day he told me, he said, I'm going down to the neighborhood. I'm going to make sure everybody's in line. I had enough of this. And I go, Dad. He goes, no, this is my life. So he couldn't leave that life. Damn, man. That's... But I'm sorry. I was just going to say, man, that's really... That's really something, you know, like you said, it's really kind of an addiction somewhat, you know, that you just really can't get to yeah. stay away from it. You know, and he just could not at all. And, you know, luckily you were able to uh, get out of it. You know, you constantly wanted to get out of this life and you finally are now, you know, and. I yeah, mean, the just... life really wasn't for me. OK, I, I like to work. I had restaurants. I love to cook. You know, the problem was. You know, when I was young, I won the Golden Gloves heavyweight in Chicago, undefeated. And my dad seen that I could handle myself. There was a bunch of instances. I didn't like violence, but if it was there and I had to protect myself or protect the people around me, I was very good at it. Um, I still don't like violence. 
This yeah. life wasn't for me. If you say, I, I was so shy when I was a kid, I didn't want to go to birthday party. You know, I didn't want nobody to look at me. So I used to walk with my head down. But, you know, I was good at what my dad gave me to do. And so he kind of pulled me in. And at some point, I mean, who wouldn't buy into their own dad? Right. You know, you think yeah. he's got his best interest in hand. He's got your back. But the old dad, when we were young, he did. His life changed him. And I don't, I don't knock the life because there's a lot of guys that live the life the way it's supposed to be. Make a better life for your family. You're, you know, you, they, they used it. It was lucrative. And um, unfortunately, my dad through his, became his boss, Angelo. And these guys were both sociopathic killers that were, that, that were control freaks and were feared. Damn. Yeah, I mean, it's just a bad mix altogether, you know. And, I mean, look what came about of it, you know. He ended up dying in prison, you know. No one wants to go out like that, you know. And, I mean, it's sad that it had to be like that, you know, and go down like that. But, you know, you, you found your way out and you made it out, you know. So now you're out here doing something positive and just trying to live your life and be with your family, you know, and just okay. like – Hey, why don't you get a job? I work two jobs sometimes, okay? I've had consulting contracts at restaurants in Arizona where I helped them build the kitchen, where I helped them put the menu together. I've been working off and on for Marriott since night since 2008. Wow. Okay. I always work. So yeah. for anybody out there that thinks I don't and thinks I'm just sitting here, I work. I work two, three jobs. I hustle. The only thing I do is I hustle legally now. Good. And you got the book and you got the tour bus. Tell the people about that, man. Yeah. So I am doing tours in Chicago for the summer, private tours only, anywhere from groups to two to five. If you have a bigger group, you call me. I can make arrangements for it. If you go on my website, is familysecrets.com. I'm sorry, familysecretstours.com. <laughs> there and, you go. My book is also on there, too. If you want to buy the book off the site, I send it to you. And there's a spot in there where you can uh, type in what you want me to write in there and sign it. Now, I'm actually working with the Mom Museum in Las Vegas. So starting in September, I'm going to be spending most of my time out there. I'm doing tours inside the museum. I'll be doing a residency there at some point. I'm also doing tours outside because a lot of my city, a lot of my story, excuse me, has to do with Las Vegas. Um, so I'll be putting all that stuff on my site soon. Yeah, well, I'll be uh, sure to put it in the, the description below, you know, your book and your website, you know, where people can find all that. Thanks, um, Yeah, yeah. Any any last words before we wrap up, man? I uh, just thanks for having me on the show. And, um, you know, the life is not what everybody thinks it is all the time. It's the same thing with gangs and everything. You know, you're only as good as what you can do for them. And that loyalty is not as loyal as you think it is. True. And if you want to get ahead in life, it's not easy. Work hard. You yeah. work hard, you'll get it. Then once you get it, you work smart. Yeah, that's true, man. And, you know, I just wanted to say thank you for coming on. And I really appreciate you taking out an hour of your time and spending it with me, man. I really do appreciate it. And I'm glad you're doing something with the second chance you've given yourself. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Wow. Pretty interesting stuff, right? Please give me a comment, a key takeaway that you got from this video. You must like something about this video if you made it this far, so give me a like button. And also, I got plenty more content like this, so please hit the subscribe button. Thank you.